Hello, my friends in 2020. Happy New Year to you. I'm still in 2053, so not a new year for me. These recordings have become a bit of an afternoon ritual for me this week, and I'll keep doing them until this thread gets shut down. But as I've mentioned these past couple days, you can call me No Kairos, your friend from the future. I'm making these recordings to warn you of what lies ahead, hoping that in some small way you'll do your part to steer things in your time in a different direction. And I'm not hoping that you'll do any one huge thing, not asking you to quit your job and start a revolution or anything like that. I and others in my time of like mind ask only that you carefully consider your decisions and make decisions that preserve your ability to continue making decisions, preserve your free agency, because there are people out there that want you on the sidelines. They want you out of the picture so that you don't complicate whatever it is they're trying to do. The arms race of my time involves advancements in quantum sciences and quantum computing in particular. You're starting to see more news about advances in these areas, but you probably don't know much about the quantum sciences. The field of quantum computing in your time is largely theoretical. Sure, you hear about quantum computing all the time, but your quantum computers for the most part look and behave like steampunk versions of Sputnik. And I'm not shitting on your quantum scientists. They're brilliant and they will continue to progress and do wonderful things. But I'm speaking more than 30 years in the future. Incredible progress has been made, yet the more we learn, the more we realize that we're just scratching the surface. And it's scary as hell. We have a very limited understanding of the consequences of our actions. We know that very small changes can have a cascading effect and we can't fully predict the consequences. The smallest of decisions and actions you take carry weight and determine the future. Poor decisions are ones that limit your future options. So if you want to steer the world in a different direction, start by jealously guarding your own free agency. So enough of my ranting. I'm 12 years old in your time, but 46 in mine. My kids remind me often that as I age, my granting rivals their grandpa, and I'll take that as a compliment. Anyway, I'd like to start off this recording by illustrating a current event in your time. Iran and the U.S. recently exchanged a few missiles. The U.S. started the exchange by assassinating an Iranian troublemaker. And the exchange ended with Iran shooting down a civilian airliner, killing close to 200 people. The details around this entire exchange is and will remain extremely sketchy. The details around the decision to assassinate Soleimani will remain vague and the reasons behind the downed airliner will also remain vague. Both sides will hide behind the need for military secrecy and national security. Representatives and opponents of both sides will search for evidence to defend or incriminate, and both sides will find plenty of information that aligns to their cause. But the reality of the situation is that nobody will ever know the truth because of quantum puppeting. That's a term from my time. Quantum puppet masters are able to make subtle changes to information and intelligence that lead people in the direction the puppet master wants them to move. In my time, we know who some of these puppet masters are, and we do our best to shut them down. But many of them don't exist in my time. We have no idea where or who they are or what their objective is. We're as helpless as you are. Our best defense is to be skeptical of information that's presented to us and to be mindful of potential manipulation. And a good indicator of manipulation is being led down paths that limit future decisions, which is why I keep harping and ranting at you to preserve your ability to continue making decisions, 
to guard your free agency. Now, getting back to the subject of my recording today, uh, in our last recording, I talked about the string of events that led to the restoration group purchasing land from Chile and Argentina. Today, I'd like to talk about what happened next. So I wish I could say that we paid the Chileans and Argentinians for their land, formed a new country, and lived happily ever after. But nope, our transaction caused chaos across the globe, which complicated our efforts to relocate. I won't bore you with too many of the details, but here's the gist. Let's talk about North America first. The main concerns Western governments had was the flight of capital out of the country and the financial chaos that was caused when the news of our large South American real estate transaction got out. In your time, imagine if Jeffrey Bezos suddenly decided to sell all of his Amazon shares and dump them on the market. Panic would ensue, and a lot of other shareholders would follow his lead and attempt to dump their shares, believing that Bezos' actions indicated inside knowledge of some catastrophic weakness at Amazon. That would send Amazon's stock into an irrational tailspin. And that's a rather simplistic example. It would be very difficult for Bezos to simply dump all of his shares he'd have to jump through a lot of corporate and government hoops to dump any shares at all. But my point is that's exactly what the United States saw in our transaction. In a very non-subtle way, we were cashing out on America, and they feared correctly that our actions would cause panic that would further destabilize the country's financial situation. So they did what governments do when they feel threatened. They sent out the antibodies. The Restoration Group was labeled a terrorist organization seeking to undermine and destabilize the West. They linked us with China, Russia, Iran, and pretty much any other government or group they saw as a threat. Once we were labeled a terrorist organization, the government was able to seize and freeze our assets via avenues such as the Patriot and RICO Acts. They surveilled and harassed our membership and a lot of innocent people who they suspected were a part of the Restoration. This was a painful time for our group, but the harassment and persecution we suffered certainly helped erase any buyer's remorse or uncertainty about the decisions we had made. The Western countries that we worked so hard to build were irreparably broken and they hated our guts. It was time to go. Fortunately for us, members of the Restoration Group owned, managed, or could manipulate key assets in transportation and logistics. I'll talk about more, uh, more about this in a minute, but we were able to transport our families and remaining assets to the port of Long Beach and emigrate to our new land in South America. So speaking of South America, we certainly didn't receive a warm welcome there either. Our little real estate transaction had thrown that continent into chaos as well. Chile and Argentina, our partners in the real estate transaction, also suffered the wrath of the West and China. Economic sanctions were brought against those two countries, and in some cases, diplomatic relations were suspended. Other nations in South America, concerned about their own sovereignty and wary of past imperialism, suspended Chile and Argentina from Mercosur and other trade agreements. They painted Chile and Argentina and their leaders as corrupt exploiters of the people and imperial puppets. Citizens of Chile and Argentina obviously had some concerns as well. I'll talk about that in a minute, but if you're in the United States, imagine waking up to the news that the state you live in had just been sold to a group of foreign investors. I'd imagine that you'd have some concerns and fears. With all of this going on, Chile and Argentina had no choice but to leverage the crypto and gold they'd received in the transaction to keep their countries afloat. They couldn't simply back out of the deal and refund the money because they were already spending it. Now you're probably wondering why couldn't Chile and Argentina simply take the money and run? 
Their militaries aren't particularly large or strong, but they do have the manpower and assets to prevent a few hundred thousand civilians from invading their borders. Our risk management assessment had yielded a significant probability that the two nations would eventually want to wiggle out of the deal. Well, we have the ultimate trump card, which we'd reveal shortly after settling Biarica. Our trump card was that we possessed the quantum keys, which gave us technological superiority over every nation on Earth. They came to understand that if they renege on the deal, we shut down their countries. We sent them back to the Stone Age. But like any good mafioso, we focused less on the threats and more on protection. As long as they honored the deal, we agreed to use the keys to protect Argentina and Chile from quantum attacks originating elsewhere in the world. And protect them we did. Those quantum keys are the only reason our nation is permitted to exist. And I think you'll understand that a bit better by the end of this recording. For now, I'll get back to the turmoil caused by our transaction. Let's dig into China. So if you remember, China was the original party looking to buy the regions of Chile that we ended up purchasing. Chile attempted to use our offer to seek better terms from China, but China overplayed their hand. They rejected the Chilean offer and came back with a counteroffer, which required the Chileans to relocate citizens living in the area, and they demanded unobstructed access to Chilean land and resources in the south. Chile was desperate, but they weren't stupid. They knew that allowing access to the Chinese essentially meant that the Chinese would squat on that Patagonian land and exploit it for all it was worth. And that land in southern Chile includes some of the most beautiful places on earth. And imagine relocating around 3 million people to other parts of Chile. We experienced that in the United States following the Cascadia earthquake, and it was a nightmare. In Chile's desperate economic situation, this would have been nothing short of a humanitarian disaster. So despite the Chileans' skepticism about the Restoration Group's ability to pay and China's threats to do the deal or else, we won. The Chinese didn't take the Restoration Group seriously either. Like much of the rest of the world, they believed us to be just another wacko fringe group or maybe a front for Western imperialism or both. So yeah, they were pissed to lose the deal to a bunch of Western wackos. When the deal was announced, they became a real pain in the ass. They immediately suspended trade ties with Chile and Argentina. Then they put pressure on other South American countries and made threats to other trade partners as well. When all of that failed, they activated malware that they had planted in the country's infrastructure. They shut down water, power plants, disrupted communications, and created cyber mayhem wherever they could. Now this is a much longer story that's beyond the scope of this recording, but let's just say the Chinese weren't happy and made it pretty clear. But after the Grom epidemic, the world was sick of China's bullshit, and most nations were becoming increasingly cautious about their dealings with that nation. They caused a fair amount of misery in South America, but once again, their heavy-handed tactics backfired on them. We had malware of our own, and I'll get to that in a minute. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the territory of Villarica. Uh, the territory that would become Villarica, things were pretty tense. Um, imagine waking up again wherever you live now and finding out that a group of foreigners had just purchased your region. Despite all of the social and economic problems, the citizens were proud of and loyal to the nations of Argentina and Chile. They felt betrayed by their own countries and were concerned that a bunch of foreigners would come in and muck up their cultures and mess with their traditions and their way of life. And they had every right to worry. South American history certainly has no shortage of anecdotes on poor behavior by Western empires. 
colonialism, exploitation, slavery, genocide, starvation, government meddling, you name it, the West has made it happen in South America. In addition to all of those fears, the citizens worried about their homes, businesses, farms, and public land. How would all that shake out? Will somebody be kicking me out of my house? Will I lose my job? Those fears surfaced almost immediately after the deal was announced, and there was quite a bit of rioting and destruction, especially of government buildings and property within the Biarican territories. Fortunately for everybody involved, the restoration group was very prepared to address these concerns. Even though the deal happened fairly quickly, plans to purchase land had been in the works for more than a decade. A solid public, public relations and communication plan had already been prepared, and since we had narrowed our focus to South America, all of the critical communications assets and collateral had already been translated into Spanish and approved by the group. The public relations efforts kicked off minutes after the deal was announced. The restoration group issued a press release and flooded the internet with targeted ads linking to important information. Those early communications focused on the WIFM, or what's in it for me for the citizens of the purchase area. Uh, the gist of those communications was, your countries have not abandoned you. You are still a citizen of Chile or Argentina. Dual citizenship will be an option. Also, if you own a land, a home, or a business, you will continue to own those assets, period. If you don't have a land, a home, or a business, let's change that. We also place some emphasis on the fact that we want those people here. We need you here. Building a new country will be hard work and there will be ample opportunities for employment, growth, and education. And finally, um, the citizens there will play an active part in writing the constitution and governing this new nation. So early on, we had to deal with some misinformation. Uh, elements of the Chinese deal were mixed in with ours and that complicated things a bit. People thinking that they would be compelled to move, thinking that we were gonna start mining and logging operations in national parks, that kind of thing. But we were able to address the confusion and set things straight fairly quickly. I won't say that the process went completely smoothly, but the work we did here in the territory went a lot better than it was going in other parts of the world. At this point, only a small number of people from the restoration group were actually in the new territory. A few thousand people who are part of the transition team were able to get there and start laying the groundwork. The majority of the restoration group's membership was still living or located in their home countries, scattered across the world. By now, the number of vested members, those who had staked crypto or gold in the project, was about 150,000. Those 150,000 members planned to bring about 350,000 of their family members with them to Villarica. So there were approximately half a million people in total that needed to relocate to South America from various parts of the world. Many countries had labeled the restoration group as a threat. In the United States, we were designated a terrorist organization, and that made it difficult to transfer assets and move money. A number of members that governments were able to identify had their assets frozen and in some cases were detained and imprisoned. Interestingly, a large portion of those who were harassed weren't even members of the group. A lot of innocent people got caught up in those government dragnets. In my family's case, we quietly made preparations to relocate. My father had sold his house months before the deal was done and had moved into a rented senior living condo. Most of he and my mother's belongings were packed in a 40-foot ocean container and trucked to a freight forwarder in Long Beach. My wife and I did something similar. Because of my job and security clearances, my finances were being watched pretty closely. 
I sold my home and rented it back from the buyer. I deposited the proceeds of the sale in a bank controlled by the group, knowing that there was a good chance that I'd eventually lose that money. Really had no other choice. Transferring that money offshore or converting it to crypto would have put me firmly in the crosshairs. We also loaded our belongings into an ocean container and shipped them to California. Around this time, the Kairos network went live. It was an instant hit, and the waiting list for the implant procedure almost immediately stretched out to six months. It was actually a blessing for our group. It diverted public attention away from the terrorists in their midst. Media coverage had been focused on uncovering membership of the group that was now pushed to the side, and attention was diverted toward all of the possibilities and fantasies that Kairos offered. The world's attention was diverted toward Kairos as well. People marveled at the immersive virtual reality or reality-enhancing capabilities of Kairos. They couldn't wait for it to be rolled out in their regions. Governments were also intrigued and scared. Each bit of news and each demo video released about Kairos demonstrated how mature and put together the network and infrastructure was. It also demonstrated how advanced Western nations were in utilizing and blending digital and quantum technologies. Governments were also concerned about the content available on Kairos. I think I talked about this a bit on earlier recordings, but on Kairos you can do things like play golf at Pebble Beach and follow it up by joining in on a virtual orgy at a swanky club in Tokyo. Some governments found that objectionable. There was one Kairos sim that really caused problems. It was called Tag Mecca. It involved sneaking into Mecca, the Islamic holy city in Saudi Arabia, and spray painting various holy sites. You got points for sneaking in, points for tagging locations, points for your creativity, and a lot of points for making it out alive. And as you can imagine, the Arab world went apeshit over that. Interestingly enough, the majority of those playing that sim were in the Arab world. Anyway, word got out that the developers of the tag Mecca sim were Israeli, and the Middle East heated up pretty quickly. Actually, it was already pretty hot. The Middle East in this time is still a corrupt and festering shithole. As oil became less important, Western nations abandoned the Middle East and left them to their own devices. In this time, the United States continued to support Israel, but that support consisted mostly of trade and arms deals. Russia and China filled the void and took their own turn taking sides and fighting wars. Anyway, long story short, this tag mecca Cairo sim threw some gas on the fire and reignited a bunch of other issues that had been smoldering. Iran was closely allied with Russia and Saudi Arabia was tight with China. Both Russia and China had significant investments in those countries and tried their best to put out the fires. They begged the West to pull tag, the Tag Mecca Sim and other objectionable content from the Kairos network. Well, the West wasn't having it. First of all, they were still pissed about the Grom epidemic. That had been a joint venture between Russia and China, and it had killed millions of Western citizens. The West was in no mood to make life easier for Russia and China. Second of all, content on the Kairos fell under the cherished Western values of freedom of expression and freedom of speech. Now, I don't hold much love for the Russians and Chinese here, but I have to side with them on this issue. Our Western politicians continued their deplorable practice of putting their political aspirations in front of common sense. They not only refused to help simmer things down in the Middle East, but they actively sought to create more objectionable content. Long story short, and I may cover this whole series of events in a later recording, 
but the situation got progressively worse until the unthinkable happened. The Iranians loaded a dirty, low-grade nuclear bomb into a small raft and piloted it remotely toward the port city of Haifa. The Israelis moved to intercept the craft, but the bomb was detonated approximately a half mile from shore. Initially, it appeared that Israel had avoided a much larger catastrophe. The bomb was small enough and detonated far enough offshore that casualties were limited to a few dozen killed and a couple hundred injured in the Bat Galim neighborhood. As the Israelis investigated, they found that the Iranian attack had gone precisely as planned. Detonate a, a dirty bomb close to shore and let the Mediterranean breeze carry the toxic fallout inland. As you can guess, this put the whole uh, world into DEFCON 1. And I'm not going to get sidetracked on what ne happened next in the region. Again, that's a topic for a future recording. But this event gave the Restoration Group the final diversion we needed to escape the country. This event also planted the seed for what would become a very strong relationship between Israel and Biarica. Israel was sick of being the punching bag and the scapegoat that suffered the consequences of the blunders made by the larger world powers. In my time, they protect us and we protect them, and the world hates us both more than ever. So between the chaos in the Middle East, the mania over Kairos, and the plethora of other problems out there, the perceived threat of the Restoration Group, and our South American enclave kind of just fades into the background. Government resources that were allocated to stopping our group are sent elsewhere to address higher priorities. The press has plenty of other more interesting things to cover and social media has moved on as well. We're pretty much out of the spotlight, so it's time to go. The exodus to Biarica was not instantaneous, but it happened pretty quickly, if that makes sense. People got there in a variety of creative ways, but I'll stick with my family's story and our story was a trip to Disneyland. That's what we told our neighbors and friends and even our kids. We were taking a family trip to Disneyland. My wife and our kids, my parents, my siblings and their families all headed to Disneyland for a week. We drove the 700 or so miles to California, drove right past Disneyland toward the port of Long Beach. We got off the highway and drove a couple miles through some working class neighborhoods and industrial areas. Our navigation led us to a chain link gate, which looked like a maintenance entrance to the port. A guard waiting at the gate verified our credentials, gave us a slip of paper, and waved us through. Another guard pointed toward a distant warehouse and told us to drive toward it. We'd received further instructions there. A group of tough-looking longshoremen met us near the warehouse. They checked our credentials and asked for the piece of paper. They glanced at the paper and told us to drive our cars to bay number seven in the building. We drove there and were told to remove our luggage and belongings from the car. We loaded our luggage onto a flatbed cart and waited for instructions. One of the longshoremen told us to get behind a yellow and white striped line, and we watched as a large overhead crane slowly lowered an ocean container. My oldest son, who was about three at the time, remembers this experience vividly. He had been under the impression that we were going to Disneyland and was disappointed in the experience up to that point. But seeing the large crane move the containers put a smile back on his face. So we drove our cars into the ocean containers, filled out some paperwork, and, and the containers were locked and sealed. As we pulled our belongings away on the cart, the crane dropped in and picked up one of the containers. My son was concerned. Our car's in there! Our car's in there! That's about the only memory he's retained about the United States, our car being craned away in a Long Beach warehouse. 
We wheeled our belongings up a ramp and onto a large container ship. Many of the bays were being filled with 20 or 40 foot containers, but a number of the bays had been converted into makeshift living areas. That's where we spent the next three weeks of our lives, cramped in with a bunch of other people fleeing the country, people we really didn't know. It was a surreal time. Reality was sinking in for everybody. We were leaving the country of our birth. We were leaving the country that our ancestors helped build and sacrificed so much for. And the irony was we were leaving our country in much the same way they left theirs, in the cramped hold of a ship. And I had uh, plenty of time to think about that. I imagined how my ancestors must have felt leaving Scandinavia and the British Isles. Was this the right decision? Will my life be any better? What are we getting into? For the first few days of the journey, I was sick, mentally and physically ill. Not from the movement of the ship per se, more from anxiety, grief, and the range of emotions that you experience as you attempt to process a decision or a journey of this magnitude. I was in the hold of a ship. I didn't even get to stand on a deck and wave goodbye with a white handkerchief or anything. The last thing I remember seeing in the United States was two large red crane towers. They looked like a pair of AT-ATs from Star Wars staring ominously down at me. But being cramped together with people for three weeks, you're forced to get to know people. We built friendships on that boat that have endured to this day. About five days into the journey, after I started to come out of my funk, my wife introduced me to a couple she had met. The man, I'll call him David, became my best friend and neighbor in Biarica. He is an architect by trade and ended up having a construction company in Biarica. Anyway, our friendship started in the drab hold of a boat as we attempted to prop each other up about this crazy scheme we had fallen into. His optimism was and still is a big help to me. My wife Lori and our kids dealt with boat life much better than I did. The kids ran around, made friends, and raised hell. The lack of privacy and boundaries did not bother them at all. Lori spent a lot of time in refugee camps following the Cascadia earthquake. She was used to the cramped quarters and dim lighting. When she'd hear people bitching about the situation, she'd pipe up and say something like, at least you're not walking through shit. And I gotta hand it to the restoration group. The accommodations weren't the best, but they maximized the resources they had. Nobody went hungry, the water was clean, and the conditions were sanitary. And our experience was pretty typical. We've since heard horror stories about norovirus outbreaks, food poisoning, and people going nuts on other boats. But that didn't seem to be the norm. The group had planned for these types of things and had remediation plans and resources on hand. On the whole, I think we had it a lot easier than our ancestors did. So roughly three weeks after we set sail from Long Beach, we docked at Puerto Montt in Chile. You couldn't have picked a better day for a first impression. We left the United States in late autumn. It was now summer in the Southern Hemisphere and it was a gorgeous day. Clear, sunny, and mountains off in the distance, the Andes, and a couple of big volcanoes. I'm gonna climb those, I remember saying. Everything was so green, the colors vivid, the water and sky blue. My first impression was probably enhanced by the fact that I'd been holed up in a ship for the better part of a month, but it was a spectacular first impression. As we were walking off the ship, my son pointed at a church in the distance and asked, Is that Disneyland? And that drew some laughs. Reality set in over the next couple of weeks. Our, our family spent about a week in a landing camp while they unloaded our belongings and figured out where we'd be settled. 
as investors in Villarica, we were entitled to property equal in value to our investment, but that would take several years to sort out. Given my father and I's experience in technology, we were asked to stick close to Puerto Montt, where we would assist in adapting and modernizing the IT infrastructure within the port itself. Many more ships would be coming, and this city and port would become an important import, export hub, and immigration point. Our family, our entire family, my father, mother, siblings, and I were given temporary housing at an abandoned property in a small town called Arellan, a few miles northeast of Puerto Montt. My dad and I would work in the city during the week and assist in efforts to renovate the property on the weekends. My brother and brother-in-law, who'd owned a construction company back in the States, were assigned to renovate the property full-time. We lived on that property for about eight months. During that time, we got to, we got to know our neighbors, um, and they were cautious, bordering on hostile for the first few months. Then, as the family completed re renovations on the property, we turned outward, offering to help our neighbors do the same. Now, my brother-in-law is a big fellow about six foot four and well over 300 pounds. But he's a sensitive and thoughtful guy and he works his tail off. And one of the older neighbor, uh, one of the older neighbors there started calling him culon, a term that means fat ass in Spanish. So in the US being called a fat ass is usually taken as an insult, referring to somebody by their physical attributes, fat, skinny, tall, redhead, etc., was usually considered impolite. And my brother-in-law was definitely insulted after he discovered the meaning of his new nickname. So he decided to come up with an insult of his own. Our elderly neighbor was bald. And from their interactions, my brother learned that the neighbor was passionate about football. And his hate for the Brazilian team, who always seemed to get the best of Chile, was equally passionate. My brother-in-law decided to give the man a Brazilian soccer name, Calvarinho. I don't think the name even makes sense in Portuguese. Calvo is bald in Spanish and Inho is a diminutive ending in Portuguese. Anyway, our neighbor got the gist, little bald guy, and got a kick out of it. We later taught Calvarino the English equivalent for Cologne and he used it liberally on everyone. Boob it, fat ass! So toward the end of our day in Arellan, people started inviting our family over for dinner and vice versa. That turned into full-on neighborhood potluck Yankee Chilean dinners, which was a change from what our family was used to. We didn't even know our neighbors back in the United States, and we certainly didn't want to eat their cooking. It, it just felt different here in a good way. We newcomers and the Chileans had a lot more in common than any of us expected. One night at one of these neighborhood dinners, one of the female neighbors asked about the Cascadia earthquake. From prior conversations, the women knew that it affected our family, but didn't really know the details. So my wife told her story, how she'd escaped the Northwest, about the friends she's lost and her time in the refugee camps. We also talked about losing our sister and eventually our brother-in-law, Jared, to that disaster. An elderly woman who had been completely silent for most of the dinner and conversation started weeping openly and loudly. We felt that maybe the graphic details of our stories were too much. Maybe we should pull the plug on story time. No, she said, tu historia es mi historia. Your story is my story. She had survived the terrible series of earthquakes and tsunamis that hit Chile in 1960 and had lost friends, neighbors, and family members in much the same way we had. 
She told her story and it was our turn to weep. My brother and brother-in-law ended up keeping the property there in Arayan and building two houses and turning the original building into a bed and breakfast joint. They both became tight with Calvarino and the rest of the folks in the neighborhood and we still enjoy our visits down there. And our integration experience is fairly typical of the general integration experience throughout the country. The restoration group settled in, took responsibility for our surroundings and made concerted and personal efforts to fulfill the promises the group had made during the initial communications campaign. And as you can imagine, there were some assholes on both sides. There were some Chileans and Argentinians who couldn't be convinced that we belonged. And there were some of us who lived up to the imperialist or ugly American stereotype. But on the whole, the integration went fairly well for the first couple of years. We experienced some major problems a few years later as real estate prices increased and the sellers became convinced that they had been swindled. And that may be a topic of a future recording. About six months after we arrived, the interim government announced a public initiative to name our new nation. Each citizen would have a say in what the country would call ourselves. All were invited to submit ideas, and those ideas were boiled down and presented to the populace for a vote. This process was important, not only because our country needed a name, but because we wanted to introduce our citizens to our new form of governance. Instead of elected officials, input was taken directly from the citizens and this took some getting used to. Voting was not done at a polling place, it was done from wherever you happen to be via the device of your choosing. And that involved registering each citizen over the age of 16 and issuing them a unique uh, set of credentials that would allow them to record their votes and decisions on the blockchain. The voting application itself was fairly easy to use, but the group essentially had to conduct a full census meet with each citizen individually, and in some cases with elderly people and so forth, provide some assistance and training on the application. Anyway, the name contest boiled down to two candidates. Uh, the first was the Republic of Villarica, which was the name of a prominent volcano in the territory. It also means place of wealth in Spanish. The second option was the Republic of Patagonia, which refers to the larger region of Southern South America. This name was more popular among we newcomers. Native people like to point out that the name Patagonia was assigned to the region by Magellan and carried some overtly racist and pejorative meaning. The way it was explained to me, uh, Magellan met some natives of the area and they had big klutzy feet. Needless to say, once word got out that Patagonia meant oafish Bigfoot, popularity went way down. So the final vote uh, was really just a mere formality. Everybody expected Biarica to win out. It was, uh, I, I was actually a proponent of Patagonia until I learned about the Bigfoot meeting and the history behind it. I guess I came around and uh, Biarica was starting to grow on me. We tuned into the official announcement pretty much knowing that Biarica would win. The MC at the election event went through a dramatic sequence that tabulated the votes and was to display the winning name of our country on a large screen behind him. His screen showed a familiar loading bar, and when the, the bar reached the end, a message popped up in English and Spanish, and it said, the winner is dot, 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 and the name that popped up on the screen was a surprise to everyone. Uh, the message that popped up said, and the winner is the Republic of Game Over Shitheads. And that's how the quantum flux began. We'd been hacked. 
our election infrastructure had been hacked, and beyond that, all of our connected infrastructure, freshly cleaned of Chinese malware, had been hacked. Electricity was cut, water was cut, dams were turned off, traffic lights malfunctioned, you name it, it was chaos. The electricity would turn on periodically and threatening messages would be broadcast over any medium you can think of, radio, internet, etc. Die traders, don't mess with the US, that kind of thing. It's really a brilliant example of psychological and technical warfare. We'd worked so hard to prove that we were competent and could build a new nation. Now we were being shown just how small and helpless we really were. I'll save the specific details for another time, but essentially we were just one little victim in a much larger attack. We were lumped in with other enemies of the Western world and effectively shut down. China, Russia, Iran, and others suffered the same fate. Their financial assets were seized, their blockchains modified, and infrastructure disabled. The enemies of the West had been bracing for the worst for quite a while. They knew that the West would be seeking revenge from the Grom epidemic the nuclear attack on Iran, and a long list of other violations. Cyber attacks had certainly been considered a possibility, but none of the affected countries, with the exception of us here in Biarica, or I guess the Republic of Shitheads per the official announcement, really anticipated such a large-scale attack was possible. But we did have a couple things going for us. First of all, the restoration portal was not affected. The portal had been set up with some redundancies in place. It was replicated to a number of locations throughout the world, and we managed to lock it down once we realized we were under attack. Within 24 hours or so of the attack, we were able to restore some basic network access by hijacking a neighboring country's satellite system. That helped us get access to the portal and learn more about the attack. Second of all, we possessed the quantum keys, a fact that I first became aware of after accessing the portal for the first time after the attack, and I'll talk about more about that in a minute. I should clarify that we possessed the quantum master key, which for lack of better terms gave us root level access and control to all of the quantum infrastructure and applications possessed by the West. But the West wasn't aware of this fact. They thought they held the quantum master key. I would later learn that my friend Adam, who I'd met working for the Department of Energy in the United States, had developed the quantum encryption technology now being used by the West. I knew he was very concerned about the way this technology was, was being used, and that led me to introducing Adam to the group via my father. What I didn't know is that Adam had retained the quantum master key and had turned it over to the restoration group. He created sub-keys and gave them to the U.S. and its allies passing them off as the master key. Again, that fact became known to me after I was able to log into the portal a day or so after the, the attack. I logged into the portal and found that, once again, I had been assigned to the intelligence work group. I accepted the assignment and was given access to my portal workspace. I had a couple messages. The first was from Adam, which was odd because we didn't use our real names on the portal. I thought it was a joke. Maybe the portal had been compromised during the attack. I went into full-on panic mode when I noticed that my full name was shown at the top of the screen. Figuring the damage was already done, I clicked on the message from Adam. Hey, good buddy, it started. I imagined him saying that in his clipped Scandinavian accent. Don't freak out. We're going to be just fine, but I need your help. I'm coming down to see you this afternoon, and I'm bringing friends. Make sure there's beer. Wow, that was way too cheerful of a message, considering that our country was just named the Republic of Shitheads and shut down. I was skeptical, but I went down to the bodega to get some beverages anyway. 
and Adam made a dramatic entrance. I heard him before I saw him. A huge helicopter swooped in over the water and landed near the Port Authority office where I was stationed. The helicopter originally belonged to the Chilean Navy, but had a new sticker covering the Navy emblem. Big bold letters, Republic of Biarica, and an emblem that looked like an old-fashioned skeleton key with four stars. Adam jumped out of the helicopter first and helped a couple people out. He turned around and noticed a large number of people gawking at him from the streets in a small park nearby. He smiled, waved, and then pointed dramatically toward the big bold sticker on the helicopter. He turned around and gave the crowd a big thumbs up. And I couldn't hear anything through the window, but it looked like people were cheering and waving back. A few more people scuttled out of the helicopter holding cardboard boxes of what looked like documents. They ran toward the people and started handing out whatever it was in those boxes. Curiosity got the best of me and I rushed out of the office, planning to meet Adam on the street. I met Adam and two other guys I'd never seen before out on the street. He gave me a big hug and handed me a leaflet, which I recognized to be one of the documents that they were handing out to people on the street. It was kind of cheesy. Big bold letters at the top that said, Buenas noticias and good news. Tune in tonight at 1800, followed by a list of radio stations, call signs, and frequencies. Adam, what the hell's going on? Us shitheads, we will turn the country back on tonight. Let's go get a beer. The next few hours were probably the most exciting and enlightening of my life. Earlier that morning, I was trying to come to grips with the fact that our country had been defeated. We'd managed to restore some basic internet access, but everything else was broken. We were pretty much living in the Stone Age. Now Adam tells me to, shows up and tells me not to worry. We have the keys. So he and his two companions spent a few minutes explaining the whole quantum master key situation and what that meant to our country. There were two things that we could do with those keys. Number one, we could retaliate and shut down the Western world just as they'd shut us down. Or number two, we could leverage the keys to make the West restore what they'd broken in our country. And he made it pretty clear that number two was our best option. Complete retaliation was a lose-lose proposition. If we shut the West down, we'd lose any possibility of restoring our infrastructure. The West had spent the better part of two years planning this attack, and that required more research more resources to execute than we had available. And even if we did have the resources, we just didn't have the time. So I asked the question, it's clear that we can't shut them down. How do we use these keys to make them back down? A demonstration, he said, a targeted attack, and that's where we need your help. He went on to say that they didn't want to mess with military infrastructure if they didn't have to. He didn't want nukes going off or people getting hurt. The West hadn't killed any of our people, so we didn't want to hurt theirs. That made sense, especially since we were still officially citizens of the West. Those people are us. Anyway, they planned to take down the Kairos network. The popularity of Kairos was unimaginable and it had become a major source of revenue and the economy for the US and the West. Taking Kairos offline would effectively demonstrate our quantum capabilities and provide the leverage needed to get them to back away. With all this going on, I was curious why he, he'd take the time to read me in on this plan. His work group had obviously been heavily involved in these plans for years, probably since Adam joined the group. What value could I possibly provide during the counterpunch operation? I expressed the same and he replied, well, frankly, not much. You're useless. We laughed and he explained, you did a lot of the work already. We made good use of the information you stole from your employers over the past few years while you were on spy duty. 
You gave us access to their code repository. We installed some spyware and have been able to keep an eye on it ever since. So we want you there when we take these shitheads down. That was the first time anybody really thanked me for the corporate espionage efforts. It had been a lonely assignment. No feedback from the group, no guidance. I wasn't even sure people were looking at the information I gathered. That work affected my marriage as well. My wife thought my work in refugee camps was purely altruistic, and she didn't look at me the same way when I fessed up that the main motivation in my, my volunteer work was testing intrusive technology and spying for the group. So I guess it was nice to hear that the espionage work had paid off, but uh, enough about my feelings. The plan was to launch the counterpunch to the Quantum Flex after the evening's broadcast. The Quantum Flex is the name given to the disabling quantum attack launched by the West. I guess it's a reference to the first time the West ripped off their t-shirt and refilled their quantum musclery. I was to be in the room as a subject matter expert on Kairos in case the attack countered any curveballs or challenges. But let's face it, as Adam said, I'd be useless. He and his team and many others, I, I assume, were the real actors. So what's this broadcast tonight? I asked. Adam looked at his companion, a stocky Chilean guy. Antonio, you want to take this? Antonio was a public relations guy, a native Chilean who joined the group a few years back. He obviously knew the culture, language, and the people and played a big part in the initial communications campaign. And as I looked at him a bit closer, I, I realized I, I had seen him on the news a few times. Antonio wasn't completely confident in his English and started out nervously. We gonna tell the peoples not to worry. He settled in and explained that we'd be announcing that the crisis would be over within one week. All services would be restored, money would be recovered, and things would go back to normal. Citizens would also receive compensation for their trouble and suffering. I was skeptical. Restored in a week? Compensation? How can you promise that and pay for that? I don't know that we can, Adam chimed in. But if we don't do and say something, people are going to start rioting and raising hell. It's a gamble for sure. The other reason for the broadcast, explained Antonio, is that the West will be monitoring our communications. We want them to know who's throwing the counterpunch. So I paid a courier to get a message to my wife. I wouldn't be home tonight and to listen to the broadcast at 6 p.m. I hopped on the helicopter with Adam and his team and we flew an hour or so up north to the city of Temuco where the broadcast would originate. At 6 p.m. Antonio and his Western colleague entered a radio booth and began their broadcast. Antonio went first, confidently broadcasting his important message in Spanish. I was still working on my Spanish but managed to get the gist. Antonio slowed down for the final paragraph of his short speech. This was a warning to the Western powers that there would be consequences to their actions. Starting this evening, we would disrupt service on the Kairos network. Damn, that was bold, I remember thinking. Then Antonio's companion stepped up to the microphone and repeated the message in English. That filled in some of the blanks for me, but it went pretty much as was explained to me earlier. The people would receive compensation for their trouble if they remain calm and work cut, rioting, or whatever during the week. Toward the end of the speech, the English speaker again slowed down and offered the warning to the West, which I understood much better in English. If they don't restore our communications and infrastructure immediately, we would take down Kairos this evening. Antonio and his companion then shuffled out of the booth and were congratulated by who I assumed were other members of their team. 
Adam then herded me out of the room, up some stairs, and into a room that seemed like a hybrid of a college lecture hall and a NASA control room. Three tiers of seating filled with monitors and technology facing a large wall of bigger monitors and analytics. Others shuffled into the room and took their places. Adam and I stood in the back. A few minutes later, an older gentleman walked into the room and started barking. Okay, shitheads, he called out. I'm itching to go, but I'm told we need to wait another 25 minutes for a response. So if you need to take a whiz, do it now. Nervous laughter followed. The naming debacle was still fresh in everyone's minds and the term shithead now carried a lot more weight. I turned to Adam, still standing next to me in the back of the room. Don't you have anything to do? Nope, I'm a paperweight just like you. He explained that his work like mine had already been done and we were just here to watch the buttons get pushed. A few short minutes later, the same gentleman walked into the room. I'll call him Boss Man, and he started barking orders again. Everyone back in the room, team leaders, stand up. Six people stood up and confirmed that their team was present and ready. The barking continued. Okay, so the U.S. is calling our bluff. They don't believe us. They want us to make their day, so we're going to smash their Xbox. Team One, are you ready to roll? More nervous laughter. The geeks in the room certainly appreciated the reference to ancient gaming technology. After each team confirmed their readiness, the boss gave the command to execute. There really wasn't much to see. After giving the signal, the boss turned toward the bank of monitors and seemed to be paying attention to what looked like a network performance graph. With the exception of some keystrokes, the room was silent. Everyone seemed to be staring at the graph, rolling across the monitor. After a few seconds, the graph started turning downwards. Then it started plunging and turning red. Yeah, baby, the boss yelled, keep it going. We watched the graph plunge for a few minutes until it hit bottom. And when it did, the room exploded. The boss man led a standing ovation and walked around the room giving high fives like a game show host. When the ruckus settled down, boss man walked to the front for some brief remarks. Okay, folks, I don't know what will come out of this or how many other battles we'll have to fight, but we knocked this one out. Nice work. Let's let them chew on this for a while and we'll meet back here in the morning. The next morning, the six teams reconvened and Adam and I took our places in the back of the room. The boss man entered and provided a quick status report. We had indeed knocked Kairos offline, but the U.S. didn't believe we had done it. So we were to provide another demonstration and turn it back on. The room groaned. The U.S. couldn't wrap its mind around the fact that our fledgling nation of wackos had the quantum firepower to take down their network. Maybe they're Russians or Chinese, but definitely not us. And in all honesty, we didn't have much quantum firepower at all, but we had the master keys, and that made it possible for us to unlock whatever we needed in order to launch a conventional cyber attack. And at this point, we weren't going to announce that we had the master keys. As in your day, politicians and military leaders in the West don't have a deep understanding of technology and might decide just to wipe us off the face of the earth, assuming that their own techno geeks could set things straight once we're out of the way. And if the West didn't come to that conclusion, one of their enemies would. In reality, China or Russia could have nuked Bietika right then and end it all. Adam explained to me that the key creation process relied on the, the principles of quantum entanglement. Disruption or destruction of the quantum master key would result in the destruction of all keys, and that would dissolve all of the quantum encryption and render useless the applications that depended on it. And that would leave all of the West's infrastructure open to be plundered by any hacker with half a brain. So yeah, revealing that we had the master key would have led to any number of worst-case lose-lose scenarios. 
Bierica would likely be nuked, the West would be plundered, and Russia and China, who'd already been plundered by the quantum flex, would be able to see all of the nasty details and would not be happy. Global war and misery would have been the result. I felt sick to my stomach when all this sunk in. Billions of lives and livelihoods were at stake, and the people in this room held the strings. So the boss man stood up in front of the room and announced that we were turning Kairos back on. We watched the flatline Kairos performance graph slowly ascend and return to normal. No game show high fives or applause occurred. When Kairos reached full performance, the boss glanced at his watch and made another announcement. Okay, teams two through six, go ahead and take a break. Be back here in 30 minutes. Team one, hang tight and watch the encryption layer. Adam explained that Team 1 would be preventing any attempts by the West to deploy additional security. They'd also prevent any attempts Russia and China might make to break through. 30 minutes later, Teams 2 through 6 filtered back into the room, and the boss man once again walked to the front of the room. Okay, let's take it down. The U.S. still wasn't budging, so for the second time, Kairos was taken down. For the next five days, people in that room repeated the turn it on, turn it off cycle. Progress was slowly made. We knew that with each cycle, the West was getting smarter about the methods we were using to take their system down. They would eventually clue into the fact that we had master keys and that they were helpless. And as time went on, we decided it was time to turn the screws. During the on-off cycles, the teams would open ports that would allow the Russians and Chinese and anyone else monitoring the network to get a look under the covers. Toward the end of the week, the West finally conceded and agreed to restore our basic necessities. Power, water, network access were restored, which helped us deliver on our promise for things to get back to normal within a week. But money was still a sticky point. They wouldn't let go of the funds they had seized. The West refused to give money back to a terrorist state. So we had to get a little bit dirty here. We had agreed to stop messing with Kairos after they gave up control of our infrastructure, but we weren't giving up on the money. The group was largely tapped out after the additional costs incurred during the purchase and settlement. We needed those funds and had promised our citizens more as well. So we used the quantum keys to encrypt the West's central currency system. The West had migrated to the blockchain several years prior and had created a common cryptocurrency. We could have attacked the blockchain itself, but much of our own funds and remaining assets were tied up there, as were those of neighboring countries. We didn't have the time and manpower to perform a forensic analysis of the blockchain and reverse specific transactions. So we added our own encryption layer and froze the Western world's finances. And that got their attention. We issued a press release to the world. Tell the West to release our funds and we'll stand down. Not only that, but we'll ensure that all funds seized during the quantum flex are returned to their rightful owners. So in addition to releasing our funds, we demanded that the West also return the funds they had taken from Russia, China, Iran, and others. Since we assumed that these enemies of the West had been monitoring our attacks, we felt that there was a good chance that they knew we had the master keys. They might not nuke us if we could get their money back. I'm not sure what went on diplomatically, but I'm sure it was a global shitstorm. News reports painted us as terrorists, heroes, and everything in between. What leverage did our tiny little nation have? The world was bewildered and wary. In the end, we got our money back and more. We had no love for Russia, China, and Iran, and insisted that the West divert some of the crypto they stole from those nations to us. 
The governments of those nations received all of their funds and the crypto we received mostly came from off-the-books agencies and terrorist organizations whose existence was officially denied. So the governments themselves couldn't gripe about not receiving all their money back. Finally, we negotiated a payment to Israel. We requested that the blockchain be modified to show a direct payment from the government of Iran to the fine people of Israel. The transaction included a memo, sorry, we were shitheads. At this point, we needed all the friends we could get, and so did Israel. Things were getting back to normal in Biarica. Our infrastructure was restored and now secured against future meddling via the quantum keys. Our funds were also restored and we were able to make good on our promise to provide each citizen of Biarica with a sizable nest egg. And that gave us the time and resources we needed to build the foundation of our small country and prepare for the challenges to come. Now I want to end this recording where I started. We didn't like what we were seeing or experiencing in the West, so we made the decision to relocate and start over. We felt that was our only option, and choosing that option put billions of lives at risk. We got lucky. Prior to arriving in Biarica, prior to joining the Restoration Group, there were countless decisions that could have been made to steer the world in another direction. It hurt to abandon our countries, and it still hurts to stand as witnesses of their decline. The smallest of decisions and actions you take carry weight and determine the future. Poor decisions are ones that limit your future options. So if you enjoy the life you're living right now and you're proud of your country, preserve it by jealously guarding your own free agency. Make decisions that allow you to continue making decisions.